Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. One of the most beautiful and intriguing aspects about sports to me is those instances when players and coaches make headlines and when you dig deeper into the story, those very same players and coaches' careers are somehow in some way intertwined in each other in a very weird way. Now this past week, two of the greatest coaches do have graced the sidelines in both college and pro football are leaving their current jobs. Nick Saban, who has won more national championships than any other coach, is retiring from the University of Alabama and will be replaced by this year's national championship runner-up, University of Washington head coach Caleb DeBoer, who defeated the Crimson Tide in Saban's last game. Meanwhile, in the National Football League, Bill Belichick, who coached the New England Patriots to six Super Bowl titles, have parted ways with the team and promoted former Patriots linebacker Eric and current defensive assistant Gerard Mayo to be Belichick's replacement. To, and to complicate the coaching carousel and what kind of have gotten lost in all of this, Pete Carroll, one of the three coaches who have won a national championship and a Super Bowl, was let go as head coach of the Seattle Seahawks to become the team a team advisor. And all of these great coaches are connected. Hello, I'm Dana Augusta, your host of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, the sports history podcast you didn't know you needed. In this all-new episode, we will talk about, you know, well, the obvious, Bill Belichick and Nick Saban. They are no longer coaching their teams that made them icons and other and the other coaching giant is leaving the team that he had led to a pair of Super Bowls they which are taking an advisory position with the team. Now speaking of coaches that won championships on both levels, Jim Harbaugh is also looking to do that after his team, the Michigan Wolverines, won the national title this past week and all indications point to him leaving Ann Arbor for a return to the National Football League. And to round out the show, we will send a shout out to three former NFL players that are up for induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That and so much more on this all-new edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. We at the Sports History Network are thrilled to work with our sponsors and partners. With their support, we are able to produce great content for you. The other cool thing is most of our sponsors and partners offer discounts to pass along to our fans. So if you go to the sportshistorynetwork.com slash sponsors page, you'll find row one, 
Royal Retros, Play Classic, Thrive Fantasy, and Mega Seats. All of these offer great discounts. Specifically at Row 1, you can save 15% at the Row 1 Gallery with the code SHN. The Row 1 Gallery includes over 5,200 reproduced sports history prints on a variety of sizes of wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. The Row 1 Shop also has thousands of more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts and long-sleeve shirts, phone cases and mugs, blankets and pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. With Royal Retros, they're the king of throwbacks. They've got jerseys, shirts, hats, collectibles, and more from defunct leagues and other teams in those leagues. From Play Classic Games, it's sports simulation board games. Just use the code SHN for 10% off your first order. From Thrive Fantasy, it's a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. Use the promo code SHN for instant 100% match up to 100 bucks. And with Mega Seats, they're tickets with no fees. You can save up to 10% with the code SHN. So check them out on the SportsHistoryNetwork.com sponsors page. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash sponsors. The soundtrack is provided by Kevin McLeod of FilmMusic.io. Ladies and gentlemen, and we are back. You are listening to the Sports History Podcast that you didn't know you needed. Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a podcast that places a historical twist on today's sports headlines. And just a reminder, if you happen to like what you hear and you would like to hear more, please do not hesitate to like and subscribe to the podcast. Also, you could drop us a line here at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Also, you can follow us on Twitter X at HistoricallySP2. And now to the lead story here on the podcast. And this past week has been one of the busiest weeks we've had here in the sports world in some time. Just two days after we saw Michigan win the national championship over Washington in Houston's NRG Stadium for their first title since the days of Charles Woodson, Brian Greasy, and Coach Lloyd Carr in 1997, a major bombshell hit the world of college football. Hours before that, the sports world was already reeling when it was announced that a current NFL coach that led his team to a pair of Super Bowls was suddenly let go to take an advisory role with the team. At about 4 p.m. Eastern Time Wednesday this past week, it was reported that Nick Saban, the head coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide, had told his players in a meeting that he was going to retire. That announcement sent shockwaves throughout the world of college football. Earlier that day, Pete Carroll, the longest tenured coach in the history of in the history of the Seattle Seahawks, all of 14 years, is now out as head coach, but will take an advisory position with the team moving forward. Then, less than 24 hours after that, another bombshell. According to reports coming out of New England, Bill Belichick had agreed to step down as head coach of the Patriots. Two of the greatest coaches who have ever coached in both college and pro football, Saban and Belichick, respectively, are leaving their respective jobs less than 24 hours apart. Lost in all of this, one of the consistent winning teams in the NFL, the Seahawks, will also be looking for a new coach this offseason. 
I can't recall if I have ever had, if I've ever seen that happen, where three coaches whose profiles are larger and whose accomplishments have dwarfed all current contemporaries have left their iconic positions in such rapid fashion. Now, it was widely speculated that Coach Belichick was essentially on his way out after the Patriots suffered their worst season since 1999 in Coach Hoodie's first season in Foxborough. But hearing the official report that he is indeed stepping down is still shocking. The ironic part of all of this, and this is the purest example of how coaches, regardless of level, somehow are all connected. Let me explain. For those who do not remember, Bill Belichick's first head coaching job was in Cleveland from 1991 to 1995. The Browns, which was the Browns' last season in Cleveland before leaving for Baltimore. Belichick, who led the Browns to the playoffs in 1994, was led by Vinny Testaverde at quarterback. And during his tenure on the shores of Lake Erie, he had a young defensive coordinator on his staff named Nick Saban. In 1999, Bill Belichick becomes head coach of the New England Patriots, replacing Pete Carroll. And all three on the same day either retired, stepped down, or became a team advisor in air quotes. It is funny how sports work sometimes, and this is one of the reasons why I love sports and sports history. But back to the lecture. Whenever you have a coach that had the success, notoriety, and influence of a Nick Saban or a Bill Belichick. I, like a lot of people that are scholars of sports history in general, have this innate reflex to try to compare their accomplishments and overall effect that they had on their profession to someone or some people that came before. In the case of Nick Saban at Alabama, there's only one person that comes to mind. Former UCLA basketball coach John Wooden. More on that in a little bit. On the other hand, Bill Belichick, whose press conferences were at times as exciting as watching paint dry, didn't have the personality of, say, a Pat Riley, but his schemes and overall diabolical genius at his craft, like Riles, set him apart. The best example of Belichick's genius took place in Super Bowl XXV in Tampa. At that time, Coach Hoodie was the defensive coordinator with the New York Giants under head coach Bill Parcells. The Giants were facing the Buffalo Bills that day and, and the high-powered K-Gun offense led by Hall of Fame quarterback Jim Kelly. Belichick devised a defensive game just for that game when the Giants employed just three defensive linemen and one linebacker, Lawrence Taylor, and flooded the secondary with defensive backs. The purpose of this was to pressure the Bills receivers, James Lofton and Andre Reid most notably. However, that defense was very susceptible to the run. Thurman Thomas had a big day running the ball against this odd alignment, but the Giants ultimately won the game, holding the Bills' high-powered offense to only 19 points. Everybody knows Belichick's records. Belichick, while in Foxborough, had perhaps the greatest quarterback ever, Tom Brady, and recorded 37 postseason wins, 19 consecutive seasons, 19 consecutive winning seasons, a 6.638 winning percentage in the playoffs, 17 division titles including 11 in a row from 2009 through 2019, and 13 AFC Championship game appearances. All of that included in a six Super Bowl winning seasons as head coach and two more Super Bowl rings as a D coordinator with the Giants under Parcells. Meanwhile, 
Belichick's defensive coordinator in Cleveland, one Nick Saban, arrived in Alabama as one of the latest in a line of coaches that was given the daunting task of bringing Alabama football back to the heights it had only previously enjoyed under Paul Bear Bryant, who was looked upon by the Tide faithful as the earthly representative of a football deity. Now, you cannot forget that Saban, when he arrived in Tuscaloosa in 2007, was already a national championship coach, leading LSU to their first national championship since 1958 when they defeated Oklahoma in the 2004 Sugar Bowl. Also, the Tide had won a championship in the time between Bryant and Saban. In January of 93, number two Alabama defeated number one Miami 34-13 under Bear Bryant protege Gene Stallings. So the expectations in Tuscaloosa are always very high to say the least. And Saban not only met those expectations, but in some cases he actually exceeded them. In addition to the championship that he won at LSU, Saban would win six more at Alabama, becoming what many people consider the greatest coach in the history of college football. In addition to that, 11 SEC titles, two-time Walter Camp Coach of the Year awards, five-time SEC Coach of the Year awards, and the first coach to win national championships with two different schools. And the best way to put his career in proper perspective is to consider this. Saban had more players that were drafted in the first round of the NFL draft during his time at Alabama than he had losses. A total of 44 players were selected in the first round from the, from the Crimson Tide during his tenure there. And over that same period, a grand total of 29 losses. To me, he is mostly co closely compared to John Wooden, who coached UCLA's basketball program from 1949 through 1975. Though through Wooden's tenure at Westwood was far longer, Wooden's stretch of dominance in the NCAA basketball in NCAA in basketball was almost the same amount of time as Saban's career in Alabama. In a stretch between 1964 and 1975, UCLA won 10, count them, 10 national championships in 12 seasons, had a 47-game, then an 88-game winning streak, two of the longest winning streaks in the history of collegiate basketball. The perhaps, but perhaps the most remarkable of all, 30, a 38-game winning streak in the NCAA tournament. 38 wins in the NCAA tournament means that if a team did that today with the current setup of the tournament a team would win six consecutive titles and advance and at least advance to the sweet 16 in the seventh in the seventh year now no wonder why sports writers back then used to call the ncaa tournament the ucla invitational saban's career at alabama is actually comparable to that Football, both college and pro, will be heading into a future without two coaches that, for the better part of a quarter century, was the def definition and the personification of coaching greatness. It is sort of true what Paul Feinbaum said upon hearing the news of Nick Saban stepping down, and it also could be said the same about Belichick. It is not the end of the world, he said, but for Alabama and New England, it is as close as as it could be. Also in college football and other coaching news, as I am writing this for like the fourth different time, Jim Harbaugh, for all intents and purposes, 
is leaving Michigan for the NFL amid possible penalties brought on by the NCAA for improper conduct with a recruit during COVID-19 and also for a stein ceiling. Allegedly. If he returns to the NFL, he will be looking to join some exclusive company. In the entire history of the National Football League, only four coaches have ever won a national championship in college and an NFL title or Super Bowl. Yet along the way, there have been several that had varying degrees of success in college ball, but it never translated into the NFL. Paul Brown, who led the Ohio State Buckeyes to the national championship in 1942, would win three NFL titles with the Cleveland Browns in the 1950s. Then, Jimmy Johnson, who won a national championship with the Miami Hurricanes in 1987, would win back-to-back Super Bowls with the Dallas Cowboys in the 1990s. Speaking of Dallas, Barry Switzer, who replaced Jimmy Johnson as head coach, would win the Super Bowl in 1995, adding to his three national titles he won at Oklahoma in 1974-75 and in 1985. Rounding out the list was the most recent person to do it, which is Pete Carroll. The aforementioned Carroll led the Seahawks to two Super Bowl appearances, winning one of those, and previously in the college ranks, he won titles with the USC Trojans in 2003 and in 2004. A lot of coaches over the years have tried to make this list Harbaugh, and Harbaugh is the latest one who has had a title under his belt with Michigan and also has let, had led a team to a Super Bowl, which he has that in his hat. Yet for every Paul Brown, there's a Tommy Prothrow, and a Chuck Fairbanks, and a John Ralston, and a Lou Holtz. And for every Jimmy Johnson, there's a Frank Cush, and a Bobby Ross, and a Mike Riley, and a Pepper Rogers. And for every Barry Switzer, there's a John Robinson, and a Jim Lee Howell, and a Butch Davis, and a John McKay. And for every Pete Carroll, there's a Chip Kelly, and a Bill O'Brien, and a Steve Spurrier, and a Nick Saban. With all of the coaching news that had been going on, oh yeah, the NFL playoffs start this weekend. Man, I almost forgot. You remember the NFL? There are six games this weekend, what the NFL calls Super Wild Card Weekend, which I don't really like that name, but that's what it is. Super Wild Card Weekend. And included in those six are the Cleveland Browns led by former Super Bowl MVP Joe Flacco. You remember Joe Flacco? Well... The former Baltimore Raven quarterback is enjoying one of the greatest second acts in NFL history, taking on the darlings of the NFL in 2003, the Houston Texans. Another game that is highly anticipated is the matchup between the Detroit Lions playing a home playoff game for the first time since 1993, facing the Los Angeles Rams, a game where both starting quarterbacks are facing their former teams, the first time that has ever happened in the history of the NFL playoffs. Jared Goff, <coughs> Lions quarterback, led the Rams to Super Bowl 53, while current Rams quarterback Matthew Stafford is the Lions' all-time leading passer. The other games on the schedule this weekend are rematches of past classic postseason games. In Dallas, the Cowboys will face one of their all-time postseason rivals, the Green Bay Packers. And everybody knows their battles in the 1990s with Brett Favre and Reggie White battling Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, and Michael Irvin. 
And of course, when you hear this matchup in the playoffs, everyone thinks of the Ice Bowl, played on New Year's Eve of 1967, with the with a berth of in Super Bowl II on the line. Yet one game that is never mentioned is the 1966 NFL title game between the Cowboys and the Packers. Taking place in the Cotton Bowl, it was the Cowboys' first ever playoff game, led by head coach Tom Landry and quarterback Don Meredith. The Packers scored two touchdowns before the Cowboys even ran an offensive play. The Packers scored on their first offensive possession, and then the Packers scored on, on the ensuing kickoff when Mel Renfro fumbled the kickoff and Jim Grabowski picked up the fumble and ran it into the end zone to give the Packers a quick 14-0 lead. Yet Dallas would respond, making a game of it, and eventually it came down to the final possession of the game. With the Cowboys down by seven late in the fourth quarter, the Cowboys drove the ball all the way down to the Packers' two-yard line. And after three tries, the Cowboys failed to score. Facing a fourth down with the game in the balance, Meredith called a rollout to the right and attempted a pass to tight end Frank Clark. Yet Packer defensive back Tom Brown intercepted Meredith's pass to seal the 34-27 win. Lost in this was the career performance of Hall of Fame quarterback Bart Starr. Starr passed for a career playoff high of 304 yards and four touchdowns to advance to the first Super Bowl. Another great matchup is Miami and Kansas City. Now these two teams have not met in a couple have met in a couple of occasions in the 90s in the playoffs, yet both of those games pale in comparison to what happened on Christmas Day 1971. The Chiefs were the defending Super Bowl champs, and while the Dolphins were in the playoffs for just for the second time in their short history, the Chiefs were indeed the defending Super Bowl champions, and also the final game in the history of Kansas City's Memorial Stadium. The game was a back-and-forth struggle that came down to the wire. After Ed Portalak's career performance of that game, when he amassed close to 300 yards of all-purpose yards and two touchdowns, he set up a Jan Stenerud the first pure, uh, pure place kicker in the, in the Hall of Fame with a chip shot field goal. Yet the future Hall of Fame kicking legend missed the game-winning field goal and it went into not one overtime, but later two overtime periods. Yet, with less than seven minutes remaining in the NFL's longest game, Dolphins kicker Gary Premium booted a field goal to give the Dolphins their first postseason win in team history, beating Kansas City 27-24. In December of 1974, the Buffalo Bills faced the Pittsburgh Steelers at Three Rivers Stadium. For the Bills, it would mark the first and only playoff game for Hall of Fame running back O.J. Simpson. Yet in this game, it would be the play of another Hall of Fame running back, which would be the difference. Franco Harris, the author of the Immaculate Reception, scored three touchdowns as the Steelers would de defeat the Joe Ferguson-led Bills 32-14 on their way to capturing Super Bowl IX over the Minnesota Vikings. And in the last matchup that we consider the historically speaking matchup of the, uh, of the playoffs, December 29th, 1979, remember where you were? The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who was just three years earlier with the buck of, butt of many jokes around, the sp around sports, were no longer a laughing matter. They lined up against the favorite Dick Vermeule coach Philadelphia Eagles, led by quarterback Ron Jaworski. It was the Bucks' first ever playoff game, and they played it in front of a sellout crowd at Old Tampa Stadium. 
Two rushing touchdowns by running back Ricky Bell and a Doug Williams touchdown pass to tight end Jimmy Giles was the difference. As the Bucks' worst to first campaign in 1979 continued as they edged the Eagles 24-17. The Bucks eventually would narrowly miss Super Bowl XIV, losing to the Los Angeles Rams 9-0 in the NFC Championship game. Coming up after the break, as we head into the Super Bowl, which is about a month from now, there are several players that are up for election into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. There are three nominees on the senior committee that we will send shout-outs to. One was a prototypical wide receiver in the 1960s that would have been a star in the NFL right now because of his size and pure athleticism and who actually started his career north of the border and two defensive players that were members of two of the most dominating defensive units in the NFL over the last 50 years. One was the anchor of a defensive unit that is considered the greatest of all time, and every great defense since his playing days is ultimately compared with. The third nominee for enshrinement in Canton was the centerpiece of one of the most physical defensive units in the decade of the 70s that had one of the most famous nicknames of a defensive unit. The story of these three well-deserving men coming up. You are listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, You can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. To conclude this episode of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, we do what we always do here, and that is to send a shout out to an individual or team or event in the world of sports history that has been maybe overlooked or forgotten about, but is very relevant even to this day, and sports fans need to be reminded of. Every year on the eve of the Super Bowl, along with the NFL Honors Awards show, it is announced the players that have been selected to, the, to be the new enshrinees of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. 
This year's nominees for the most part are household names such as Antonio Gates and Eric Allen, Rodney Harrison and Reggie Wayne, who had very distinguished careers that took place in the grand scheme of things fairly recently. Then there are the ones who played long before the more current candidates of enshrinement. This year there are three players that distinguished themselves with outstanding careers that spanned from the late 1950s to the early 1990s. The first person on this list of three began his career in the Canadian Football League with the Toronto Argonauts. Now, every team has a certain position that has a lineage of great players which lends to that team's identity. For example, when you think of the Chicago Bears, you think of linebackers such as Dick Buckus, Mike Singletary, and Brian Erlacher. When you think of, say, the, the 49ers, you think of great quarterbacks such as Wyatt Tittle, John Brody, Joe Montana, and Steve Young, and current quarterback Brock Purdy. Now, when you think of the Raiders, you think wide receivers. You think of Hall of Famers such as Fred Bolitnikoff, Tim Brown, and Cliff Branch. But you also think of others that were essential to the Raiders' famed vertical offense like Bill Miller, Warren Wells, and Rod Sherman. Yet, the man who started that tradition with the Oakland Raiders was former San Diego State wideout Art Powell. Powell was an athletic 6'3 speedster who began his career in Canada with Toronto, then a season with the Montreal Alouettes, before joining the Philadelphia Eagles stateside in 1959. The following season, Powell joined the AFL's New York Titans and teamed up with future Hall of Famer Don Maynard. That first season in 1960, Maynard and Powell became the first wide receiving tandem in pro football history to gain over a thousand yards in a season. After three seasons with the Titans, he moved across the country to join the struggling Oakland Raiders in 1963, arriving with the Raiders' first year head coach, a man named Al Davis. From 1963 to 1966, Powell was the focal point of the Raiders' precision passing attack. That first season in Oakland, Powell won his second AFL receiving title with 73 receptions for ju just shy of 1,400 yards and 16 touchdowns. Teaming with Davis, the Raiders improved that season with nine more wins than they had in 1962 and finished second in the Western Division, that season a game behind the eventual champion San Diego Chargers. On March 14, 1967, Powell, along with Glenn Bass and quarterback and future coach Tom Flores, was traded to the Buffalo Bills in exchange for a former Notre Dame quarterback with his propensity and uncanny ability to throw the deep pass. He was, of course, the Mad Bomber, Darryl LaMonica. Powell would play just one more season, just one season in Buffalo and retired after the 1968 season as a member of the Minnesota Vikings. During his career, he was a four-time All-Star in the American Football League, two-time All-AFL, and finished third all-time in receiving yards in AFL history behind Hall of Famers Lance Allworth and former Titans teammate Don Maynard. Along with his 81 career touchdown receptions, Powell is fourth all-time on the Raiders' all-time receiving list behind Tim Brown, Fred Bolidnikoff, Cliff Branch, and Todd Christensen. A few years after the retirement of Art Powell, the Denver Broncos would draft the linebacker out of Ohio State that would eventually become the centerpiece of one of the most dominant defenses in the 70s. In 1974, NFL, in the NFL draft that year, the Broncos picked Randy Gratishar. 
with their 14th pick, Gratishar, standing 6'3", was one of the best linebackers in the NFL, yet most of his career he was overlooked. Starring in the league at the same time with the likes of Randy White of the Cowboys, Jack Ham and Jack Lambert of the Steelers, and Robert Brazil of the Oilers, Gratishar eventually made a name for himself and his defensive teammates by the fall of 1977. Spurred on by Bronco Mania and the play of Denver's defense known as the Orange Crush, the Broncos powered their way to Super Bowl XII by upsetting the Steelers and the Raiders in the playoffs, and the centerpiece of that defense was Gratishar. The defense not only featured Gratishar, but it was also featured the likes of Lyle Alzado, Reuben Carter, Tom Jackson, and Louis Wright. Despite losing to the Cowboys in Super Bowl XII in New Orleans, Gratishar's great play continued the next season as he was named NFL Defensive Player of the Year. During his Hall of Fame-worthy career, Gratishar was a seven-time Pro Bowl selection and two-time All-Pro. As the anchor and captain of the, defense, of the Denver defense from 1975 through 1983, the Broncos was third in the NFL in yards allowed. Only the Steelers, Steel Curtain, and Dallas's doomsday defense was better. He played 10 years with the Broncos and is considered the greatest defensive player in team history. The third player that was nominated by the senior committee was Steve McMichael, most notably of the Chicago Bears of the 1980s. The 1985 Bears defense is considered by many to be the most dominant and most feared defense in the history of the NFL. McMichael was the anchor of the Bears defensive line and he contributed to the famed Buddy Ryan designed 46 uh, defense. Drafted out of Texas in 1980 by the New England Patriots, he arrived in Chicago in 1981 as a free agent. For the next 12 seasons, he was part of the most dominating defense the NFL had yet witnessed. He was also a two-time All-Pro selection and two-time Pro Bowler. And during his time with the Bears, he started 101 consecutive games at defensive tackle. And in 1988, he had a career high in 11, with 11 and a half sacks. For, those, for these three men, Powell, Gratishar, and McMichael has been a long time waiting for that call, and each one of them is very deserving to be inducted into the hall on their own merit. Yet, it cannot be denied that these men were vital parts of the history of the National Football League. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast coming to you from the Bill King Memorial Studio in the sports wing of TM4 Enterprises located in suburban Atlanta in the shadow of Stone Mountain. To get more content of Historically Speaking Sports, you can check us out on Twitter X at HistoricallySP2 or you can send us a line at Historically.Speaking.Sports at gmail.com. And if you have not done so already, please, please, please subscribe to the show. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Hell, tell a passerby on the street about us if you think they like sports history. And until the next episode, stay blessed, stay cool, and be your best at everything that you do. Peace.
Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.